Thanks, Abby. Um, can everyone hear me? Just doing a quick mic test. Everyone hear me? Give me a quick nod if you can hear me. Fantastic. All right, great that um, everyone's here for our next uh, sermon in the Rest for the Weary series, which has been such a vital series for the life of church. I hope it's been helpful for you so far. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, I want to start with a bit of a confession. Um, I like to be in control. All right. Anyone else here like to be in control? Hands up. Don't be shy if you like to be in control. Yep, a lot of control freaks here like me. That's good. Um, I think I was doing a pretty good job of that, uh, being in control of my life until, until I had kids. All right. So parents, I know you feel me. When you have kids, you realize that you are completely not in control. Uh, you aren't in control of how much milk they drink or don't drink. You aren't in control of how much sleep they have or don't have. You aren't in control of what foods they like or don't like, whether they're happy or sad. Uh, you aren't in control over the state of your house, or you aren't in control of how many pieces of Lego you'll find in every single place in your house. Right? You are not in control. And that's really clear when you, find, when you start having kids. Yeah? Should I change mics, Steve? That's no, all good? Okay. So parents, I know you feel me here, um, you know, but here's the thing, it doesn't, it doesn't stop you wanting to try and be in control, does it? Uh, to do whatever you can to make these things work out. And of course, as parents, there's something good about that. We want our child to flourish. Of course, we want to do whatever's possible to make sure things go well in our household. But let me tell you, trying to control the chaos, it is absolutely exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. And maybe you've experienced that in other areas. Maybe you're not a parent. But maybe that's exactly the same way you're feeling about school. Maybe that's how you're feeling about work, about uni, about family life, that you're just trying to make sure everything works and everything turns out the way that it's supposed to turn out, but it is absolutely exhausting, day in and day out. Friends, today I want to show you, Jake, I want to show you Jesus. And my hope is as you look to him, you will find rest from the exhausting task of putting your chaotic life in order every single minute of your day. Okay, so you ready? Well, let's start by having a look at the story of rest so far. Oh, before I get there, let me remind you that we have a podcast series um, that we're doing in conjunction with our rest series. You can find it there, cpchurch.com slash podcast, as long as any of sermons you've missed. Okay, so just a quick reminder about that. Um, So we're going to start by having a look at the story of rest so far. The way we're looking at rest is we're looking at the big storyline of rest in the Bible. So let me just take you um, on a quick overview of where we've been so far. Um, So we see in Genesis, uh, this this is a story of rest that starts right from the start. The seventh seventh day of creation is the culmination of creation. God creates. He works for six days in creating. And then he reaches the seventh day. And guess what he does? He rests. He rests because he's deeply satisfied with his creation. And he rests because he's delighting in that relationship. That is the state of rest that God made, that we were made for. But unfortunately, humans forfeit the state of rest. Why? Because of their sin, their disobedience to God. And they're kicked out of the place of rest, out of the presence of God, into a world of toil and burden and pain. But God doesn't leave us there. God sets a plan in place to restore humanity to rest with him. He does that, actually, by choosing one man called Abraham and the nation that comes from him, Israel, to be the recipients of his promise of rest, a perfect promise. Um, And 
the way that plays out in the Old Testament is a perfect promised land full of abundance. The promised land, this is the place you will find rest. As, and as they journey towards this promised land, they are called to Sabbath, yeah? to stop every seven days, to remember the rest that they were made for in worship of their God. At Mount Sinai, they were given the Ten Commandments to solidify this command to rest, to Sabbath. This was so important. But here's the thing. Although they got so, so close, so close, the rest of God slips through the fingers of Israel. They enter the promised land, actually. They get there. They get there. But they don't stay there. They, they actually become a great nation under the great King David. You might have heard of David and Goliath. But because of their disobedience, they're chasing after other gods, other idols. They're exiled again. It is Eden all over again. In the place of rest, but kicked out. Out of the land of rest. And the prophets, throughout this time of exile where they're not in the land that they're supposed to be, speak of hope. The prophets, they speak of a future hope of rest to come, a time of restoration, the time of Eden restored. And the one to bring about this rest would be a promised king, a Messiah. But friends, even as Israel returns to their land, they never find this rest. They come out of exile, they come back to their land, but... It's never restored. Nation after nation comes in and starts oppressing them, ruling over them. As we enter the time of Jesus, they are actually under the rule of the Roman Empire, a a, a shell of the nation that they're supposed to be. The people are crying out for rest. Who will bring it to them? And this is where we pick up the story, the story of rest. And this is our first point, the Sabbath mission of Jesus. If you've got your booklets, there's a time to get them out now, rest booklets. There's some more on the table at the back if you like some, um, and there's pens up there as well. The Sabbath mission of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the first story of Jesus going public about his mission in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is a historical account of Jesus' life, the first story of him going public about his mission is on the Sabbath day. It's in Nazareth, in his hometown. And what actually happens is he goes to the synagogue, like all faithful Jews, and he's past the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he finds a particular passage to read out loud, a section of what we know as Isaiah 61. Um, and I'll read this to you soon, but just to give you some context. This particular section that Jesus actually reads is about the year of Jubilee, which I like to call the Mega Sabbath. That's not the technical name, but I'm going to call it the Mega Sabbath. You see... For Israel, I don't think we realize how important the Sabbath was for God's people. You see, Israel didn't just celebrate every seventh day as a Sabbath rest. This Sabbath theme was everywhere in their life. So they rested one in seven days, but every seven years was a sabbatical year, a special rest for the land where the land was not tilled and harvested from so that it could recover. Yeah? So every seven years was a sabbatical year, and then every seven cycles of seven years was to be a jubilee year. And do you know what happened on the Jubilee year? Every debt was, was forgiven. Every debt was, every, everything you owed was wiped, your, your slate was wiped clean. Every slave was set free. Everyone who had lost family land would have it restored to them. It was a total reset for the nation of Israel. It was coming back to a state of rest. And needless to say, Israel looked forward to this mega Sabbath Jubilee year with anticipation. 
And the prophets, actually, in the Old Testament, the prophets, messengers of God, used this jubilee hope as a way of thinking not just about what would happen after 49 years of, of, of work, but about thinking about all of history, that one day all of humanity would come to a state of jubilee, mega-Sabbath rest, a giant reset back to the rest that we were made for. And that's the context. And then we see Jesus, he walks into the synagogue, he's passed a scroll, and he reads this passage out. It's one of, this is one of my favourite parts of Scripture, actually. So have a look at this. Luke 4, 18, it's on the screen. This is what Jesus says, reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And this is a good part. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I believe this is the earliest historical record of a mic drop. You know, everyone here is blown away. They're speechless. They're left utterly shocked. What? What has this man just said? Because think about what Jesus is claiming. He is saying, the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the one that you are hoping for to bring in the rest that you have been waiting for centuries and centuries for, to usher in this new age of restoration, a full Sabbath rest, an eternal rest, he's here. You see, in Jesus' mind, his mission was a Sabbath mission. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus' mission like that. A mission to restore humans to rest with God. And as we see Jesus begin his ministry, we see this in action. What does he do? Well, he starts by rolling back the impact of sin, because the whole reason we can't rest is because of sin in this world. He starts by rolling back the impact of sin. He travels around and he starts healing people. And when Jesus heals, it's saying, the impact of sin is being done away with. The impact of death is being done away with. It, not only that, he raises people from the dead. Death defeated. He accepts the outcasts and the oppressed. He even forgives sins. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings rest. He's bringing back things to the way that they should be. He's a walking Sabbath. This is Jesus. And as Jesus, and this is how Jesus starts his mission in this world. And as Jesus continues, his Sabbath mission is large in his mind. And we're at point two, the Lord of the Sabbath. And we pick up the story in Matthew 12, which was the Bible reading, which Abby gave us before, where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. The disciples, they're walking through, they're hungry. So what do they do? They start picking these heads of grain and they start um, crushing it in their hands and they start to eat it. And then out of nowhere, the Pharisees pop up. Now, I don't know if you thought how weird this is, like they're just creeping around a grain field, just waiting. And they pop up and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? What are your disciples doing? They're breaking the Sabbath law. Now, if you remember last week when Pastor Matt gave us a sermon, what was the Sabbath for? Well, it was a day of celebration, a day of rejoicing, a day of resting and remembering God and his salvation. It was a joyful celebration day. But what had the Pharisees done? The Pharisees, the, the ancient teachers of Israel. Well, they had made it into a burden. 
what they had done actually is they had um, started making all these extra laws. They weren't in God's law. They started making all these extra guidelines uh, which people had to adhere to about keeping the Sabbath. They had guidelines that were so specific that if you walked a specific amount of steps carrying an item, then it became work. But if you walked maybe one or two steps less, then it wasn't work. It was very legalistic. Now, I don't, if I was an ancient Jew back then, I would just stay in my house petrified, not doing anything in case I broke God's law. This isn't rest, that's, that's a burden. But that's what the Pharisees had in mind. So you can see that in the eyes of the Pharisees, any breaking of the Sabbath was very, very significant. And this seemingly innocent act of plucking a few heads of grain was very serious for them. They expected Jesus to rebuke the disciples, to say, stop doing that, this is wrong. But instead, Jesus replies with some massive claims, and these are huge. And firstly, it's the story of David. Let me read this, Matthew 12, verse 3. He answered... Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, you'll find this account in 1 Samuel 21, and what's actually happening in this story is that David, who has been anointed but he's not yet the king, is on the run. And he's running from the actual uh, the, the king of Israel at that time, which is King Saul. So he's on the run. King Saul's out to get him. Uh, David's been anointed as the king, but he hasn't been installed as the king yet. And uh, they go to this place, and they're hungry. And according to the letter of the Lord, they shouldn't have touched that bread because they weren't priests. This is bread only for priests. But David ate the bread. And even the Pharisees recognized in this situation that this was a special case because the human need outweighed the law, especially for someone as important as David. And Jesus brings this up to make a point. He says this, he's saying this to the Pharisees, he's saying, remember David, who he was. He was God's anointed king. Even the Pharisees would agree, the greatest king Israel ever had. And Jesus is saying, if David and his men were allowed to break the law, of course I can, because I am greater than David. We know from the prophecies he can say this because Jesus is the greatest son of David, the fulfillment of every promise to David, the long-awaited king from David's line who would reign forever. He's making a huge claim here. My authority is at least equal to King David's authority, the greatest king in Israel, but we actually know it's even bigger. That's a huge claim, but he doesn't stop there. Jesus' second argument concerns the work of the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And this is a simple argument from Jesus. He's saying, well, on the Sabbath day, the priests are working, aren't they? You need someone in the temple to help administer the sacrifices, change the holy bread out. Pharisees, why don't you rebuke them? They might reply, well, Jesus, they have to do that. The work of the temple is important. Worship of God is vital. They have to do that. Of course they need to work. The temple was everything to the Jews. The center of all that was holy and sacred, where people would go to sacrifice to God. This was a symbol of God's presence with his people. And Jesus would agree about the importance of the temple. But he also makes this statement. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying he's bringing a new order 
to this world, transcending the old ritualistic ways of the temple. He's bringing a new way of worship. No longer is the focus of God's presence to be a building. It will be focused on a a person, Jesus Christ. The very presence of God comes through him. Forget about the temple. Jesus is how worship truly happens. God dwelling with his people. And remember, this is the definition of rest. It's starting with Jesus. And I don't think we recognize how outrageous this claim would have been to hear. Forget about the temple. God's presence is here in me. This is a massive claim, but Jesus isn't finished yet. Um, He actually concludes his section in verse 8 with this. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees were trying to assert their authority over the Sabbath, not realizing they were standing in the presence of the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who has ultimate authority over the Sabbath. Because why? Because he is the only one with power to bring about true Sabbath rest. You see, the Pharisees were really hung up about keeping the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, though, was never really about the day. Did you realize that? It was simply anticipating what was to come. I don't know if you remember, but back before COVID, you could go to the supermarkets. Do you guys remember? And you used to get these little samples. When I was a kid, I used to love those little samples, right? They weren't samples for me. They were lunch, really. So you used to get free samples at Woolies, you know, little pieces of cheese, little pieces of sausage, all these things. Um, And the purpose of the samples was that you could have a little taste, a little taste of the real thing. So you'd buy the the real thing, take it home because it was so good. Um, Well, that's sort of like what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath was always designed to just be a tiny little taste, a little sample of the true rest that God started in the garden and that remains for us to enter. A rest that can only come in a deeply satisfied relationship between us and God. That is what rest is. The Sabbath was never supposed to just be an end in and of itself. It was always pointing to something bigger. We aren't talking about a 24-hour Sabbath rest, uh, no matter how good it might be. We're talking about a Sabbath that never, ever ends. And there's only one man with authority to bring this about, with the power to actually make this happen. It's a man standing right in front of them, in front of the Pharisees right there, the, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus chooses his words very carefully here. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. These words are packed with authority. The Son of Man language brings to mind the prophecy from Daniel 7 of the one who will rule over all nations. The Lord language tells us that we are standing in the presence of royalty. Actually, we should be bowing before him right now. And this is important because we need someone with enough power, with enough authority to save us because we cannot save ourselves. This Lord language, this power language, this authority language is intentional from Jesus. He shows us our situation and that he is the only one that can save us. Let me remind you about our problem. Our problem is this. As long as sin remains, sin separates us from our creator God, which means we can never, ever be at rest. Because rest is a satisfied relationship with God. But praise God. Because the Lord of the Sabbath has come. And remember his Jubilee Sabbath mission, what he proclaimed. What what happens on the Jubilee? 
Well, the Jubilee is when slaves are freed and debts are cancelled and Jesus has come to do that for us. He's come to give us a fresh start. He's come to give you a fresh start. The Lord of the Sabbath humbles himself to death on a cross for you and me to pay for our debts so our slate could be wiped clean. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're forgiven in Christ. Jesus gives you a fresh start. And the Lord of Sabbath also rises from the dead in power, breaking the shackles of sin and death that have enslaved humanity ever since the fall. Death no longer has a final say. What does that mean? You are no longer slaves to sin and death. You can be free. This is the ultimate jubilee, Sabbath celebration, debts cancelled, slaves freed, and a connection to God restored once more. The cross and the resurrection mean something very significant through the Lord of the Sabbath. It means we can come back and rest. It means that there's a Sabbath that never ends for us with God and his people in perfection. Another way Jesus often speaks of this is the kingdom of God, a perfect place of perfect rest. And guess who the king is? None other than the Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, here's the thing, the first thing that I want you to do. I want you to stop, look at Jesus, and be in awe. So just stop, look at Jesus, and be in awe. Did you see the claims that he was making? Greater than David, greater than the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one that fulfills every hope and groaning of rest that humanity has been crying out for ever since the fall. Remember the entire timeline of history that we looked before, what's being fulfilled in this man. The crusher of sin and death, the bringer of peace with God, the king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of true rest. Only the Lord of the Sabbath has the power to do this. And he's done it for you. And he's done it for me. This is your king. And if you really get that, if you really get that you have a king who is all-powerful, a king with all authority, who has absolute control, that will completely transform the way you live. It will transform the way you rest. And we're just going to look at one aspect of this now, the liberating rule of Christ. Let me tell you one of the reasons that we cannot rest. One of the big reasons that we can't rest is because of a lie that many of us believe, and it's this lie, that I can be in control. We think it's all up to us. We think we can do everything and solve every problem. It's all in our heads, right? We're always thinking about it, yeah? We think as all we need to do, actually, is to work harder, prepare more, be more organized. Otherwise, it will all fall apart, you know? It's, it's up to me. I've I got to be in control, and I can be in control. I can do this. So what do we do? We get busier and busier. We work harder and harder, and we worry more and more and more. And we can't find rest. Who here has ever lain awake at night thinking worries in their head, stresses about life? You're worried and you're stressed and you're thinking about, it could be anything. It could be 
the house that's still in a complete mess, the exam that you have to take tomorrow, the performance review with your boss that you have no idea how it's going to go, the party that you're organising, there's still so much to do, got to do it, the ministry that you're responsible for, people are counting on you, you got to do well, the doctor's appointment you have tomorrow, where you just aren't sure what the result will be, your child that just will not listen no matter what you've tried, the hard conversation you have to have next week with a family member that you know is going to be really painful. Some of these things are small, but some of these things are weighty and significant. And we all have different concerns and worries in our head. But Jesus wants you to remember something. You don't have to be in control because you have a king who is. Let me say that again. You don't have to be in control because you have a king who is. Friends, you are not supposed to be the ruler of your life. Jesus is. He is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he has come to bring you rest. Maybe in your, in your mind, you, you can't rest or won't rest until everything is organized and finished. Everything is put in order by you. But let me tell you, if you wait for that to happen, you will never rest. You cannot bring about that rest in your life because you aren't in control of what happens. If you ever doubt that fact, maybe you want to look back at 2019 and think about COVID-19. I don't think any of us planned for that. But I've got some good news for you. You aren't meant to be in control. You are meant to be a finite, dependent human. You are not God. God is God. And isn't that a good thing? That's a marvellous thing. Remember who your God is. Remember who Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. By his power, he has crushed sin and death. By his authority, he has opened up a way to rest that was closed for so long. The kingdom of God is now open to you. He is the king that is ruling right now in the heavenly places. Do you know that? He's ruling right now. He has all power, all authority, and all rule. And this is someone you can trust. You can trust Jesus. Sometimes um, my son Nathan, who's seven now, I think. I've got too many children. I can't remember their ages. He's seven now. Um, sometimes my son Nathan, what he'll do, he'll, he'll, do, he'll, be, he'll climb up on this little stool at the sink to like wash his hands, and then he'll say, hey, Dad, trustful, right? Do you guys know what trustful is? It looks a bit like this, right? You know, I don't know if you've ever had to do it for work. You have to fall back, and you've got to trust the other person to catch you, right? So he'll just climb up on the stool, and then he'll say, trustful, and sometimes he'll just start falling. I've got to run there to catch him, right? But... Um, but a trustful does take trust, doesn't it? You're really putting your trust in someone. But when Nathan, my little son, does that, he gets up on the stool and he falls back, um, he does that knowing two things. He does that knowing that I'm strong enough to catch him, right, and hold him up. He would not ask um, Jacob to do that, you know, my, my three-year-old, to catch him, right? He knows I'm strong enough to catch him and that I'm not going to let him fall. But he also knows this. He knows that I care for him and I love him, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep him safe, right? That I'm strong enough, and that I actually care for him enough. And friends, this is like Jesus, our king. This is what we need to see. Jesus, your king, is strong enough 
to handle any worry that you have. He is Lord. He reigns over all. No problem is too big. No problem is too small. You have to realize that. And not only is he strong enough, he is also a good king that cares about you. Colossians 1 tells us that in Christ, all things were made not just by Jesus and through Jesus, but he actually holds all things together. He's sustaining every little thing that's happening in this world. Every flower that blooms, every bird that falls to the ground, every aspect of your life is in his hands. I don't know if you realize that. I know sometimes it feels like this isn't the case, that Jesus has lost control, that he's actually not king. Or maybe it feels like he doesn't care. He stopped caring. But if he cares for the flowers and the birds, how much more will he care for you? If you belong to Jesus, remember you are one of his children. Remember his rule is good and just and loving. He has already sacrificed his life to bring about eternal rest. How much more so will he take care of you right now? He's already given it all for you. Your life is in his hands. And that friends, if you think about it, is a huge, huge relief. It means, remember, you don't have to be in control because you have a king who is. This truth will bring you rest if you really believe in it. Earlier on, I said I want you to stop and look at Jesus and be in awe. Well, here's the second thing that I want you to do is to stop Look at Jesus and trust in his rule. And you might notice stop is a big theme in this series. And there's a reason for that. Um, Did you realize the Hebrew word Shabbat, which Sabbath comes from? Do you know what it means? It means to cease, to stop. Rest starts with stopping. Because when you think about it, when we stop, especially in this case, what are we saying when we stop? We are saying, God... I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm going to let go now. I'm going to stop striving and working and being busy. But I'm not going to worry about this anymore and I'm just going to put it in your hands. The simple act of stopping is an act of worship. It's an act of deep dependence. It's saying to God, I will stop being, trying to be in control and I'm going to trust you to be in control. I'll depend on you. Taking time off is actually an act of faith. Hear me rightly. I'm not, I'm not saying to be lazy and not do anything. Let go and let God with everything in your life. Jesus, take the wheel completely. I'm hands off. I don't do anything at all. I'm saying you work faithfully. You fulfill your responsibilities that God has called you to, and he's called you to responsibilities. You look at the scriptures. But you work faithfully. You fulfill your responsibilities, and then you stop. And you trust God with whatever the outcome might be. In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus teaches, he says, well, um, which one of you by worrying can add a single day to his life? You know, each day has enough worry of its own. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. So let go. Fulfill your responsibilities. Then stop and let go and trust God with the outcome. Also, the second thing is to notice, I'm not saying that if you worry or if you stress, 
that it's a sign that your faith is insufficient. We are humans, friends. This world is a broken place, and we will worry. We will worry. But I'm saying that you shouldn't let your worry and your stress be your king. Don't let your worry and your stress be the driver of your life. Don't let worry and stress make your decisions for you. So often, these are the way, it's the way we make our decisions. If you, live, if you live your life rushing around trying to fix up every possible source of worry and stress, then you will never, ever rest. You can't survive, in fact, because we were not created to live like this. You were created for deep dependence on Jesus, your King. That's what you were made for. Do you believe that Jesus is in control? Do you believe that Jesus is in control? I know for me, so often my life doesn't reflect that. And maybe that's why, as a pastor, uh, recently, I have been so tired (laughs) and so exhausted. But here's the good news that I need to hear, and I'm sure we all need to hear as well. You don't have to be controlled, be in control, (laughs) because you have a king who is. Friends, trust and dependence is a lifelong journey. It isn't a one-time event. I want you to remember that. Trust and dependence is something we do each and every day when we get out of bed and we entrust our lives into the hands of Jesus, our King. All right? So there will be times that we stumble and the times that we fall, that we will let our stress and our worries overcome us. But in those times, come back to Jesus and find grace. Know that he forgives but know also that he empowers you and gives you the grace that you need to live out your life in dependence to him. He, God never asks us to do more than he empowers us to do by his grace, friends. So come to him in deep dependence and find rest. Trust in him. Let me finish with the words of the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ from John 16. John 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks and praise that the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, has come. The Lord of the Sabbath has died and raised again to open up a way of rest to us that was cut off on our own. We could never enter. But thank you, Father God, that Jesus has come so that we don't have to work out how to get to rest ourselves, that we don't have to be in control of things and sort out everything before we rest, but that right now we can come to him and find true rest. Thank you, Lord, that eternity is waiting for all who bow their knee to Jesus, our King. And we pray that you will help us to trust more and more, little by little, each day as we journey on this Christian journey of ours towards that heavenly goal of worship and deep delight and satisfied relationship with you, our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're just going to take a minute to reflect on what we've heard. So take, take some time. Think about the scriptures we've gone through and just reflect on God's word.